0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to episode 453 with my guest, return guest, Caitlin Doughty. i um, Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I am not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. It's more like a drum circle with, uh, I don't know, insert something. Except a penis. Please do not insert a penis into my metaphor. I want to read something from a book that, that I've been reading. I'm not a member of this uh twelve step group, but sometimes I just like to to read literature from various support groups because I, I it can't hurt. And I'm always looking for new insights on on my issues. This is a book, um it's a part of the Al Anon support group. It's called From Survival to Recovery. And again, I am not a member of Al-Anon. I am not a spokesperson for Al-Anon. I don't pretend to know anything about it. Um, <laughs> I'm barely a human being. How's that? I needed to end it with something really, really self-effacing. These. Th- this is a list of questions to ask yourself. And I nodded my head to so many of these. Some of these I've worked through in my other support groups, but uh, enough dawdling, Paul. Read the fucking list. Number one, when difficulties occur, do you need someone to blame, even if it is yourself? Two, do you feel uncomfortable or draw a blank when asked what it is you really want? Very much uh, relate to that one. Or I'm afraid to say what I really want. Three, does a dark cloud of despair, is there other... Are there light clouds of despair? Does a dark cloud of despair or a creeping depression sometimes seem to appear from nowhere to weigh you down? Four, do you feel guilty or selfish whenever you say no? Five, are you lonely and isolated? Do you feel like an outsider in the midst of a crowd? Six, can you identify only one or two extreme feelings such as anger or fear? I didn't know there was a third feeling. 7. Do you think in all-or-nothing terms? Is life either wonderful or miserable with little in between? 8. Are you numb or flat with no extremes in your feelings whatsoever? 9. Does your memory fog out or have giant holes where you remember nothing? 10. Do you feel suicidal or have a need to hurt yourself or others? 11. Do you tolerate unacceptable behavior even after you have said you won't? 12. Do you have difficulty relaxing and having fun? Would you not recognize fun even if it was right in front of your nose? 13. Are you frequently impatient with yourself or others? 14. Do you think you're the only person in the world you can depend on? 15. By the way, there are 700 questions. 15. Do you feel compelled to do things for other people that they could do for themselves? 16. Do you do things you don't want to do rather than risk disappointing other people? Oh my God, I hate how much I relate to that one. Seventeen, do you have difficulty trusting your own perceptions? Do you need to prove you are right and others are wrong in order to convince yourself? Eighteen, do you feel embarrassed or ashamed because of someone else's behavior? Very much relate to that one. Nineteen, do you startle easily? And number twenty, do you think the best way to take care of your needs is not to have any? Wow, that <laughs> was so uncomfortably dead on, and uh, I'd say about half of those. About half of those. I created a new survey. I don't know why it took me so long to do this, but you know, sometimes we'll play the fears and loves game uh, on the podcast, where my guest and I go back and forth, trading things we love and and things that we fear, and I decided to. Create a new survey where people can list things that they love. People, places, things, memories, anything. And so I want to read a couple of those. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself April Wilds. And she writes, I love the sub-orgasmic feeling I get under my skin when I get into my car to drive home for the rest of the day where I will immediately remove my pants and bra. Getting out of uncomfortable clothes is such a fucking great feeling if if ever i have to wear you know shirt tie dress pants dress shoes oh my god do i love that feeling getting out of them a lot of times i'll just do it at the event because i can't wait and let me tell you that will clear out a room this is filled out by gwyn she writes I love harmonies that are so beautiful and tight that my eyes well up with tears and my heart actually hurts. This is where you would insert a joke about a vagina, by the way. I will will keep that placeholder so that you can craft your own vagina joke uh, to insert there. Uh, I feel that way about the guy's voice the lead singer and i don't even know his name of the of the zombies they were a group that was really popular in the 60s and i think even the 70s but they were probably most well known for that song uh, it's the time of the season and if you listen to any of their lesser known songs you can hear more of his voice in fact there's one I, i'm blanking on the name of it but it's almost a completely a cappella song and His voice is so amazing. The timber to it is... Velvet is the only word that I can think, and I feel that way. I mean, my my eyes don't well up with tears, but I find myself thinking, God, if I were born with that voice, how different my life would be. Everything would have worked out. God damn him for being the one that got that voice. I curse him to hell I cast him out, down to the deepest, deepest bowels of hell. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Father Time is a fuckface. Oh, I think we all agree with that. He writes, for the last week, I've been on a dating site pretending to be someone more appealing than myself. I've even been using an Olympic athlete's photo as my profile photo. Hardly anyone has called me out on it. I like that, hardly anyone. So someone has called you out on it. Uh, He writes, in fact, quite the opposite. My fake profile has gotten me hundreds of replies, half a dozen phone numbers, and private photos of at least four different women. As far as you know. It started just as a quote, fun distraction, but somehow it morphed into something darker. Somehow it will, somehow it started to get me off to jerk these women around after the last five or six years of feeling invisible. I'm only stopping now, in parentheses, after six straight hours of this imposter game today, to really think about the lunacy of it all. How did I end up here? More importantly, how do I get back to being comfortable in my own skin again? Well, first of all, I think you're minimizing what it is that you, that you are doing. You know, you wrote that it started out as a fun distraction. For you, it might have been fun, but—and I'm not trying to, to, to shame you. You know, we've all done things that we regret and that have hurt people that we look back and we're like, oh, my God. But I would not minimize the effect that this this can have on people, Um it's so hard to trust in this world and I think anything we do where we betray people's trust just adds to that that pile of dread that we feel walking out our door during the day and I find that you know you talk about wanting to find a way to be comfortable in your own skin again I find that helping to create a feeling of trust and vulnerability in the world is actually the thing that helps me feel more comfortable in my own skin. And when I try to win or get something over on someone, that makes me, while I make it a rush in the short term from feeling powerful or in control, ultimately it leaves me feeling ashamed and lonely and isolated and uncomfortable in my skin. So to your question how do i get back to feeling comfortable ask for help man it sounds like you're caught in a dep- a compulsive cycle and we need tools to deal with our feelings and it sounds like this is the tool that you've been using to deal with your feelings and it's it's not a great long-term plan man and there's probably also stuff that you need to process from your from your past that that you've buried. Just, just some thoughts. I don't know. I could be, I could be wrong, but I've never been wrong once in my life. Um, that was that was such an uncomfortable moment <laughs> because then I started thinking: Are there people that think that I'm actually serious when I say that? As if my sarcastic deep baritone impression of a pompous ass wasn't enough to let them know that I wasn't being serious. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself everything is great. Thanks for asking and he writes I turned 40 and my mother who neglected my brothers and I growing up wanted to go to lunch to celebrate. I'm trying to have boundaries with her now as an adult. I set up a time and place well in advance. After I'd been sitting alone in the restaurant for 20 minutes she texted to say she would be 20 minutes late. She showed up 30 minutes later she gave me a shirt she originally bought for her boyfriend. I know this because it was several sizes too small. When we had finished lunch, it was time to pay. She learned the restaurant only took cash. She did not have any money. I paid for lunch. Best birthday ever. I have, I have gotten that from, from my mom as well. A lot of times the, Christmas package that she would ship to me, because I stopped going home for Christmas years ago, would just be a collection of things that she had just picked up when she was spree shopping, things that if she was paying any attention, she would know I had no interest in. Things that I had asked her, please don't send me self-help books. There'd be self-help books in there. And every Christmas... I would feel guilty because I felt angry that she was sending me things. And I thought, you know, can't you just be grateful that you're getting something? And then when I was in my support group for a while, I started to realize, no, I feel, my feelings are valid, that I feel like I'm not being heard, I'm not being seen. And once I started giving weight to that, it really opened up a lot of room for other Thoughts and feelings that come up that ultimately got me rolling on my my road to recovery and setting boundaries and uh, ultimately cutting contact with her, not because of the presence, but it was a part of a a larger pattern of her not listening and respecting my boundaries. Um, One of today's sponsors is betterhelp.com. If you have never tried online counseling, I think you should. That's my opinion. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they feel that they have a counselor who would be a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if, if online counseling is right for you. I've been doing it for a couple of years and I love it. Do it from my recliner every Monday afternoon. And you need to be uh, over 18. We are also... Sponsored by Jetson Probiotics. Uh, I've talked about the gut-brain connection on this uh, this here podcast. Uh, 90% of the serotonin, the neurotransmitter that contributes to how we feel, lives in your gut. So it's pretty crucial for your gut to be healthy. And uh, I started taking Jetson Probiotics a few weeks ago. And here's the details. They're fresh. Uh, probiotics have to be fresh. To work and jetson ships them fresh from the lab to your door they're seasonal they rotate their formulations every season their fall one which is called uh, it's called mood uh, it has melatonin to help you sleep during the shorter days their winter one which is called immunity has zinc and vitamin c to keep you from getting sick and they work they work so if you're taking a probiotic switch to jetson and if you aren't it's time to start Go to wearejetson.com and enter the code Mental for thirty percent off your first month. Once again, go to wearejetson.com and enter the code, uh, enter the promo code Mental for thirty percent off your first month. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself God. I love the names you guys give yourselves, Mega Shitlicker Five Thousand. I think we all agree that the f- first model of the Mega Shitlicker, the Mega Shitlicker 3000, was left a little beating desire. Actually, when I first read this, I thought it said Mega shit Kicker, which I, th- I gotta say I think would be a better name than Mega Shitlicker. Whew, did I get off on a tangent? She writes, A co-worker and I were discussing our vaguely misogynistic boss. I've been working here for four and a half years and she's been here for about nine months. It seems that the boss really favors beautiful new women for a while until a new beautiful woman is hired. She was expressing concern about his flirtatiousness with her. I really like her and I don't feel jealousy or anything and he's almost endearingly, sincerely oblivious as to how vaguely inappropriate he can be. I told her I was the favorite new girl once. I was a little younger and a lot more focused on my appearance back then, and I've seen this cycle many times. She said, wow, so it's it's like you're aging out at a strip club. Now, you're like the motherly old ex-stripper who does the young girl's makeup knowing what they're in for. Jesus Christ, and I am only 29. Nobody's Nobody's cool and and everyone's scared, scared, and and we're just all all in in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl.
1: Panic attacks were so violent, rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures.
0: Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me.
1: Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared.
0: He said, there's going to be a sack of the hunger, strike." Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal.
1: Just Beyond broken. i You have to like fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die
0: is a miracle. It's to be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not
1: looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm here with Caitlin Doty, uh, who's returned guest, and uh, your your wheelhouse is death, baby.
1: I'm back, baby, and I uh, have more death for you. <laughs> the, uh, more deathy than ever.
0: The, you were wearing the greatest t shirt I've ever seen the last time we recorded. It said Future Corpse. And in a nutshell, isn't that really sums up your humor and the, the kind of the subject that, that you talk about? Absolutely,
1: it's a perpetual awareness that we are all living in these flesh bags that yeah. will eventually die and decay.
0: Uh, you're a best-selling author; people may know you from reading your stuff on NPR. Um, you're a licensed mortician. What am I missing?
1: I do a web series called Ask a Mortician. I have a nonprofit called The Order of the Good Death, Mm -hmm. which is about death awareness and and educating yourself on how to have less expensive funerals, more environmentally friendly funerals, more family-involved funerals, and I write books.
0: And would it be fair to say that one of your missions is to erase the fear of talking about death and kind of embracing the inevitable?
1: Yes, because you can't, and I don't think it should be a goal to erase the fear of death. That's right. just not possible. It is it is a natural part of our existence to have a fear of death. But exactly like you said, what we can do is erase the fear of the conversation yes. around death and yes. somehow the sense that if we're having an open conversation about death, it's inviting it into our lives and experience. We're calling down the curse of death upon us, as opposed to working out something that people are anxious about and curious about in a safe way.
0: Uh, In your last book, you talked about the way death is viewed and handled uh, in different cultures around the world and fascinating. Book, uh, so you do a lot of research uh, in the and the stuff that you talk about, like uh, the newest book that you have you answer me the, the name of the book of the, it's again will my cat eat, eat my, my eyeballs, eyeballs. Uh, and it 's questions a lot of them from children about what uh just questions about about death, and one of my favorite little sections in there is the one what hap would happen to an astronaut's body if they die and it's it's uh there's so much scientific information how how did you find that out did you go to talk to somebody at nasa or what what?
1: i actually did have a contact within nasa and her biggest contribution to me was how unwilling they are to publicly talk about their plans for astronauts that die in space Mm -hmm. That question was actually one of the hardest for me because I'm more of a historian anthropologist style researcher, so I'm really comfortable in that realm, but science is a little harder for me. My brain isn't automatically science research minded. So this is the one that really took a lot of reading old medical papers and old research papers and blogs from from space enthusiasts on the internet and these deep dives into places that I don't normally go to get the answer to this very specific question. And I had to double and triple check my work on it because throwing out science facts again is not natural to me, but I think that it works really well in the context of this book, and I wanted to integrate more science into this book as well.
0: And, and it blends very nicely with the, the humor, because some of it is so ridiculous, but uh, conceivable... Mm-hmm. Not- oh, conceivable. I, I increasingly
1: conceivable, right? When we have right. more, you know, i <laughs> sorry to say, like, I'm once Elon Musk starts sending rich people into space, like that's, that's, you know, they're not going to be young, fit astronauts with extreme training. Yeah, this is a real possibility for and what about Mars? What if we take a kind of one way trip? What happens then? Right. You know, these are all there. Very specific questions that converge on the ridiculous, but they are interesting thought experiences and able to open a conversation around death that's Jeez. not as threatening it's not like what's gonna happen when your mom dies it's these you know why don't bugs eat your bones if they eat all your flesh you know it's it's things that are not immediately relevant to you perhaps but that can make the conversation
0: less threatening is, is it that uh, bugs don't floss is that why
1: <laughs> well you think they
0: would use little tiny bones to you floss would, right you would think so that's the like perfect the, thing like the cartoon you a little know? Binny toothpick. Yeah. Um, Death has been an obsession for you since you were a little girl. You witnessed, and we talked about this the last time you were here, but you witnessed a horrific uh, child fatality at a mall when you were a kid, and that triggered uh, OCD and obsession with death. What, where are you today in, in your anxiety and your OCD, just about anything in general, but you know, also is, is there still stuff around death? I know that it's nine <laughs> questions I just threw Ooh, at you.
1: That's what coming on this podcast yes. is like, right? right? Um, I think one of the reasons that I am so interested in working with kids or speaking directly to kids or speaking, you know, to be honest, speaking to parents of children is, that if your child is asking questions about death, is feeling withdrawn and obsessive about death, they probably are. And you're hearing one ninth of what's roiling around in their brain right. about death at any given time. And when I was young, after I did see it was a child that fell from a really tall second-story balcony, and I heard them hit the ground and, and saw the aftermath. And I was eight years old. And the reason that it was so terrifying for me, I think, is because I really did not feel safe talking about it. I did not feel safe asking questions. And my parents were fantastic, but I think that they also did not know how to ask like, wait a second, or how are you feeling? How is this going? And And therapy wasn't on the table for something like this. So it became just I was trapped in my own mind and my own experience and the constant, constant fear that someone was going to die. And I'm not suggesting that talking about how astronauts die in space would solve all of that, as a a child. But I think introducing that kind of natural curiosity and humor to a child's experience around death. So their only engagement with death isn't like, you know, your grandma's going to die, you know, you're going to die someday, all your little friends on the playground, they're going to die, you know, taking away that kind of pressure and turning it into, hey, you like science, you like history, you like mummies, you like all of these different things. How can we engage the conversation of death in that more fun, open way. And so, so much of what we do as adults is a way to fix our childhoods, right? Or to engage our childhood. Is there any part of it
0: that isn't an attempt to fix uh, our childhood? Oh, man,
1: probably not. For me, no. Um, But I think that what I, I, I don't have active OCD anymore. That was a very intense, probably year or two year period in my childhood, Um, But the anxiety around death, everyone has it in different levels. I always say I don't completely trust the usually men who say I've just never death has never meant anything to me. I've never been afraid of it because I found that the people who really have faced down death and have a better relationship with it, it's very hard one. You know, they talk about standing at the edge of the mountain of existential despair and crawling out and truly realizing their own death for the first time and doing meditation and research and all of these things to get them to a place where they feel like they have a positive relationship with death. And so for me, too, I I, I would never tell anyone that my death acceptance journey was easy or that I just... Learned a couple things or started working at a mortuary or started working at a crematory. And all of a sudden I was like, I'll die someday, but we all will circle of life. Like, that's not how it works, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of crying and despair and therapy, especially if you're, if you're more sensitive to those, those types of fears. But we're all on our journey. And right now, I was actually talking about this the other day. I feel like at the moment, I'm in a pretty good place with my mortality because there's a thing, a list that I discovered several years ago in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, I believe it was, and it was the eight reasons that people fear death. And they ranged from, you fear death because you're going to leave your children or dependents behind. You fear death because of what's going to happen to your body, cremation or burial. You fear death because of an afterlife that you perceive. You f- you fear that there's nothing, that there's just a void after you die. Then it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. The actual death process itself is going to be painful. And then the one that immediately I was like, well, there it is, that's me, is your plans and projects will remain Unfinished. Oh,
0: my God. That
1: you're leaving things behind on the table and that you're not accomplishing. You
0: didn't fulfill your potential. You didn't
1: fulfill your potential. You didn't fulfill what, you know, what you've wanted for yourself or what other people wanted for you or however you receive your validation in that sense. Mm. And that was number two. And I immediately was like, two, I'm like an Enneagram or something like I'm a number two, totally a number two. So relatable. And I will say that now releasing my third book that helps. It really helps to have tangible things that exist in the world. Mm. It helps me to have, and this is, if you're not a two, this wouldn't help you as much, right? right. You'd still be like, but my children, but you know, my fear right. of pain, but because I'm so strongly that two, it's so strongly me trying to somehow justify my place in humanhood, By having contributed in this specific way to people's understanding of death and their relationship with death. I always said it was so ironic that I was desperately trying to help people be okay with death, but I was terrified of death because I wouldn't achieve that goal.
0: Right, You know, and it kind of yes. blows
1: your mind. I'm like, wait a second, Very meta. How, where do I get it? Where do I yes. get off being so terrified of death? Because I don't do the job of getting people to be more comfortable
0: with death? If if that doesn't have a codependent through line, I don't yeah, really exactly. know yeah. what, what does. So it's not so much that you're not going to leave a legacy for your own image. It's that you feel a burden upon yourself that that kind of the universe has chosen you to be the messenger of uh, black lilies,
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know that I think now that I'm I just turned 35, I think that that was a much more felt, intense preoccupation in my 20s. I think that in this is not true for everyone, but in general, people in their 20s really have this feeling that they have been chosen for something mm-hmm. that they are required to do something. I mean this isn't not the experience for everyone, but for me I really had this feeling. I remember walking down the street at night a couple days before my very first book came out in 2014 and just sobbing hysterically because I was so worried that it wouldn't do what I wanted it to do. It wouldn't have any effect on culture. Nobody would read it, nobody would get anything out of it.
0: God, that's a lot of pressure.
1: It's a lot of it's a lot of pressure, but it was very I've always been very uh I impose pressure on myself. Like my parents were, I was like, I'm going to the university of Chicago. I'm doing this. And my parents were like, you know, you can get a full scholarship to the university of Hawaii and live at home and save money and have a really nice life. And I was like, no, I must, I must go out and, and achieve things. And, um, I think that now having this third book, it, if you are someone who feels the burden of creativity or the burden of, Creating some sort of impact for whatever reason, make the thing, do the thing, because as difficult as creative things are, as soul rending as they are, I do feel better on the other side.
0: I, well, let me interject myself into the equation for yeah. Please, what a, number? A, a what second. number are you? <laughs> uh, the pain of death. The pain of
1: death. Yeah, that's uh, a popular one. And
0: and I would say. Um, also, a bit that I that I will feel regret that I didn't do enough. Honestly, not for other people, for a a sense that I God, this sounds so egotistical, but I have a lot of different passions, some of which I feel like I'm pretty good at. You know, uh, playing music, woodworking, stuff like that, and. A lot of times my depression or my lack of inspiration, whatever you want to call it, laziness, keeps me from fleshing out the ideas that i have in my head my head is bursting with ideas every when i meditate 90 percent of it is just me coming up with ideas (laughs) i just make lists
1: i just like make mental lists when i meditate it's exhausting
0: and then there are days like yesterday where i did almost nothing and so i'm torn between the being kind to myself because i'm in a place where i can't will myself to get up and go do something and thinking to myself, what's the, what's the switch in my head that I can flip that will get me up to go do this? And I wind up spang, spending seven hours in front of Netflix. And then as I'm going to bed, thinking to myself, okay, if you did die and you didn't get enough of these ideas out of your head, so what? So what? Billions of people probably experience that. And that's okay. But it gnaws at me.
1: That's incredibly relatable. And I think it will be relatable to a lot of people that are listening. It's also always shocking to me. This just happened to me this week. I'm doing all this book promotion. And you know, this is a busy, busy, we're opening a new funeral home in like two weeks in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. This is a busy time for me. And I rented just a hotel room in Los Angeles. Nowhere fancy just to say, okay, I'm just going to go and read my book. I am going to put no pressure on myself to do anything. And of course, the minute I show up and the minute I'm there, the ideas just come flooding in. Mm -hmm. Because I've put that framework of, I don't need to do anything today. I don't need to answer and that, the emails and that I frees up an energy and that frees up an energy yeah the, the the most days are okay i gotta call the bank and then i gotta move this money here for the tax uh you know the income tax on the funeral home and then i have to go do this thing and i have to answer these emails and it's just mm-hmm. you know the constant working for yourself grind that a lot of people
0: experience and do you, do you have a voice in your head that says i can't do it I can't do it. Or or are you somebody that has enough of a track record of just willing yourself into doing it that that voice doesn't carry much weight?
1: What I will say is that I've written three books, right? I have no memory of writing those books. Like I have no – and whenever I sit down to write now, I'm just like, oh, man, writing's hard. What? This is impossible. And obviously they got done through drips and drips and drips. Um, and I think that what really helps is accountability for me, which is not a sexy answer, but I have a deal with a publishing
0: house. Ah, so the deadline. Exactly. Like, like I feel like that is a switch. That Emphasis on dead. That, that I... <laughs> Emphasis on you will ultimately
1: die and need to That's... create things. But I think if you if you have something... I guess this is this is maybe for you too. If this is some, if you have something that you really, you've really decided would be important for you mentally, or you feel like it would feel like a move forward or a shift for you if you got it done, work on some accountability for it. Work on someone you know. Someone wants to commission a woodworking piece from you, or somebody wants a specific song, or you're working with another artist to have it done at a specific time, because. Yeah, it'll mean some days you have to drag yourself to do it. And then there'll be other days where you're like, Oh, the, you know, muse has arrived to me. And here I am creating this beautiful work. And then 75, that's 25%. And then 75% is like, Oh, I guess I'm chipping away at this piece of wood or I'm, Oh, okay. I'll put on a podcast because, oh. but eventually you look behind you and there's something there and i've always said i don't like writing books i like that i have written books ha which is a very different thing right, right. and there are writers writers of course or musicians musicians who simply existing in the craft is mm-hmm. its own reward but for me as an advocate the reward is having something like having the pamphlet to pass out at like the communist rally you know it's like having the work to give out and to hopefully change people's minds, having the video on how to have a low-cost viewing or how to get a simple direct cremation or a green funeral, having those things in existence is what I enjoy. And the process of making them, it can be enjoyable. A lot of it is painful, but knowing that it's out there is what has made me more comfortable with my own mortality because I feel like if I died now, it'd probably be good for my brand, Mm -hmm. right? You know, I'm not thinking – I'm not – that's not in the realm of something I want to happen. But the fact that these things now exist outside of myself that represent my advocacy – kind of makes me go okay you're 35 now like is this another chapter that you now need to start i've been trying to find hobbies recently and people that i talk to are like what are you talking about you have a life project you don't need hobbies like, oh, i couldn't
0: you... disagree more
1: really that's interesting because that's the yes. opposite i was expecting people to go absolutely you're right get some hobbies it's time to distract your brain and the only hobby i have is i read a lot i read mm-hmm. a ton i read you know 90 books a year um and I, I, it is meditative for me because it distracts my brain. It, it puts my brain away from my own thoughts to just somebody else's thoughts, mm-hmm. which replace mine, and that's that's nice. It pulls me out of my life. But the response that I was surprised that I got from so many people is, "No, you're already okay. You have a life project that you're working on, so you yeah. don't need hobbies." Or for people who don't have that,
0: I couldn't disagree more. Great, tell, tell me about. Tell me more about that. I, I think. Uh, the, the wellspring and that sounds so pretentious of the creativity for our main passion depends on other stimulus to keep it varied to, to keep it from becoming autopilot mm-hmm. um, when I take six months away from playing guitar I feel like it's it's an, a new instrument It's even though I'm not playing it I'm absorbing all of these things and it's kind of filling me up. Same with woodworking. I took probably uh, four years off from woodworking because I didn't feel like it. And then when the desire to do it came back to me, uh, I just started cranking out the, the, the projects. And not only that, but I had somebody who was interested in learning how to woodwork. And for me, it's so much easier to have the motivation to be to please someone else or to have a deadline than it is to, uh, you know, uh, get out what what it is that I have in my head, because I can talk myself out of doing the, well, you're going to make a mistake, and you're going to fuck up that piece of wood that cost you $200. So why don't you just watch Netflix or take your third nap for the day? But if there is a possibility that somebody is going to be mad at me, that will get me to go out and do almost anything. Deadlines, I'm
1: telling you. They're, yes. they're, they don't get enough credit. I think we deem, we demonize the deadline. But I think for people who are doing work like that, it's, it's really helpful. But I, I do, I sometimes worry that because in my own life. I'm so already so like, okay, here's my optimized list. Like here are the three things I must get done today. Here's this, 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 this. And even when I read books, I keep a list of the books that I read over the year and I highlight the ones I liked best. And then I share the ones I liked best. And I'm like, wait a second, am I just turning this into another task that I have to do? And that's my concern with the idea of hobbies is that, is it possible to in this life that we now live in, in 2019, to have a hobby or a passion that has nothing to do with work and that has nothing to do with monetizable things—they're where... they're the best because they're yeah. so pure. I know. I want yeah. I want something snowy and pure, Come like on. your like your beautiful dog here, like a <laughs> snowy white, beautiful, pure, innocent, separate hobby
0: you have an open invitation to come learn how to woodwork on a, on a Friday night. My dad is a woodworker. Is he?
1: Yeah, he's he's always been an incredible. He he carves tiki's. We live in Hawaii, so yeah. he carves carves tiki's. He will take a chainsaw to a piece of wood and create a reindeer, you know, Good for Lord. Christmas or Christmas. Like he can just do he can just do wonderful things and I've always had such an admiration for his art. So maybe yes. I will. Yeah. My people will Talk to your people.
0: <laughs> it It is uh, because there is no end goal other than the creativity of itself. And the most pleasurable days are the ones where I have an idea in my head. I don't know how to accomplish it. And there's that challenge, almost almost like a crossword puzzle of how do I elegantly solve this uh well, you can't be elegant in a crossword puzzle, but uh, I, I suppose almost like m- mathematicians, how they really love the solutions that, you know, they use the word elegant. Mm-hmm. And for me, yeah, let's say you, uh, there's a piece out there that I, that I built an end table, um, where it's, it's mid-century modern. I feel like I'm talking about myself too much, but I'm just going to plow ahead anyway. I wanted to combine my love of Japanese lamps. And mid-century modern furniture, and I thought because I I love that experience when you're sitting at night in a living room, and something is is kind of glowing, you know, mm. be it a fire or it's Christmas time, and you and you see the lights. And I thought, well, why can't that be year round? And I thought, I wonder if there's a way that you can embed a Japanese lamp into a piece of mid-century modern furniture, and I can accomplish both. And I got so excited, because now it was, how do I go about accomplishing this in a way that is aesthetically pleasing and is practical? And I was just obsessed for three months designing it and refining it. And when I finally got it done, I still feel satisfaction when I look at it, and It's, it's, I forgot what, what got me started talking about this. Um, What what, what was it that that got me off on?
1: Well, we were talking about the, the whittling. Well, something that you said that.
0: Oh, the purity. Yeah, the purity of it. it. It, Yeah. I suppose there was some egoism in it in that I couldn't wait to show it. To people, but more than anything, I wanted to experience it. I wanted to experience sitting in my living room and walking over and turning that light on and feeling that glow and recounting all the work that I put into it and the problems that I solved and and the techniques I had to learn to get to that place, but it wasn 't because you know I had a contract with somebody to do it or you know some some other outside thing. it was just like there was this energy inside me that I almost had to like vomit up because it there was so much pressure underneath it, like good pressure mm-hmm. and those I don't think I could have felt that as much if it had been something that was related to uh podcasting or stand-up comedy. Work, 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 My work, work. Work,
1: work, work. work. Yeah,
0: yeah, you get that first paycheck from something, and I think it takes a little bit out of the, the purity of it.
1: Yeah, it it does. And and I don't, I don't want to tell people that you can't have pure art when you make money off of it, because people should be making money off their art if that's what they want to do. Yes. But I remember two for about two years when I was in mortuary school and right after, I did taiko drumming. I had I the Jap- Japanese taiko drumming. It's the giant uh, Japanese drums that you see the big sort of like ruler sized drumsticks. Oh yeah, there yeah. They go boom, 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 mm-hmm. <tut> boom, 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 and you spin around and you hit the drums and somebody comes out in a
0: weird mask and
1: that's not not in taiko but no. but connected. Okay, that's that's like a no theater, but that's. It was something that I had grown because in Hawaii, we have a lot of Japanese influence. And I had grown up seeing taiko drummers at, at Oban festivals and various places. And I had always just loved the depth of the drums and the deep, almost like, you know, war-like feeling of, of, of how powerful the drumming was. And you can like, feel and it in your so, chest. You feel it deep, yeah, deep inside your body. And so I just looked up, like, is there someone in Los Angeles who is doing this? And there was taiko drumming lessons in Long Beach. So I showed up every week and, and learned with this group, and we performed at the Ford Amphitheater. And Holy it was shit. just so much fun. And it was this community of people who did it together, and there was children's groups and adults groups, and everybody has potlucks, and you're also doing these Jap- giant Japanese drums. Sometimes,
0: and- that not that the best part of it? The, the community of it? It was some of it was some of the most fun
1: that and this is when I had first moved to Los Angeles too, so I didn't really have too much of a friend community. But just getting to like hang out and then perform taiko drumming, it was just such a fun truly fun, and you're right, pure time. Where like I certainly was there's no not, angles. There's Nobody's no angles. Nobody's working an angle. No, there was no angle. I mean I didn't even think I didn't even, you know, put it on my social media. I didn't think I'd tell they were telling anyone I did it. Um, but it was it was so much fun and, and it I'd like to find something like that again. So I, I appreciate the support that I don't that I can still have hobbies even yes, if I yes. also have this big project.
0: Yeah. So where would you say – oh, actually, let's read uh, something from the book. The, sure. the The one I think you have dog-eared is What Would Happen If I Died on a Plane?
1: Yeah. So speaking to a lot of people's anxieties, yes. <laughs> Here's, what would happen if you died on a plane? Do you want me to read the whole thing? It's that pretty would be short. great. Okay. What would happen if you died on a plane? The flight attendant would open the plane's emergency exit door and toss your body out <laughs> attached to a parachute – Before you head out the door, they'd place a little card in your pocket that lists your name and address and says, don't worry, I'm already dead. Oh, I'm being informed by fact checkers that this is not official airline policy. If you die on a plane, it's usually not because the plane has crashed. Plane crashes are very rare. Your chances of being in a plane crash are 1 in 11 million. I tell you this statistic because, personally, I am freaked the heck out by plane crashes. But it's not gonna happen. You're safe up there. But, with 8 million people flying every day, it's almost inevitable that someone will die from heart problems, lung problems, or other ailments related to old age. Dying somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean after a complimentary ginger ale is always a possibility. A few years ago, I was flying from Los Angeles to London. After our chicken tikka masala dinner, the guy next to me keeled over into the aisle, puking up his tikka masala and lying completely motionless. "'Oh, crap, this is not a drill,' I thought. As a mortician, I wasn't good for much beyond being comfortable sitting next to a dead person for the rest of the way to London. Fortunately, there was an actual doctor on board. She got the gentleman back up and running, and he even got to sit in first class for the rest of the flight— I was back in coach he with a lingering tikka, tikka masala puke smell. I mean, wouldn't be surprised. The flight crew will respond in different ways, depending on whether there's been a medical emergency or a death on the flight. If the person is clinging to life and can still be saved, the flight crew will try to divert the plane and land at the airport nearest to the medical personnel and a hospital. But if the person dies, well, they're dead now, and they're still going to be dead when we land in Bora Bora. What's the rush? If you happen to be sitting next to the person, you will find yourself living through the undeniably surreal experience of having a dead seatmate. Excuse me, you'll say to the flight attendant. I'm sorry to bother you, but I didn't sign up to sit next to a corpse for the remaining five hours of the flight. Especially if you're trapped in the window seat while the dead guy has the aisle seat. <laughs> but no worries. The flight crew will whisk the body away immediately and store it out of sight, right? Uh, no. They what? will 100% leave it in the seat next to what? you. In the more glamorous days of air travel, airlines would always leave several seats open, which would allow for the corpse to at least have its own row. But nowadays, any frequent flyer knows that the airlines pack their flights completely full. If that's the case, the flight attendant might drape one of those scratchy blue airline blankets over the dead person, buckle them in, and call it a day. Surely there must be some secret place on the airplane to store a dead body, you say. Have you ever been on a plane? packed like sardines in there. The airplane bathroom is not an option. The person will slump down to the floor, making it impossible to open the door upon landing. And if the flight is longer than three hours, rigor mortis might set in, making removal even more challenging. Plus, sticking grandma into the plane laboratory is not particularly respectful. Remaining available options are body in an empty row, if one is available, body in the seat next to you, if zero other seats are available, or body in the back galley, where the beverage carts come from. Best-case scenario, the flight attendants might lay the body in the galley, cover it up, and close the curtain. Once upon a time, like 2004, Singapore Airlines actually installed the secret corpse cupboards we assume all airlines have. Aware that people died while flying, the airline was attempting to take the trauma out of such tragedies. The cupboards, complete with straps so the body didn't go soaring on a bumpy landing, were built into their Airbus A340-500. This particular aircraft was used for the longest flight in the world at the time, 17 hours from Singapore to Los Angeles, with very few places to land along the way. Sadly, these Airbuses have since been discontinued, along with their revolutionary corpse cupboards. You probably don't love the idea of a dead body on your flight. I'm extremely comfortable with dead bodies, but even I could do without sitting for several hours next to a stranger's corpse. But would it make you feel better if I told you there are dead bodies on your flight often? You just don't realize it. I'm talking about bodies in the cargo hold of the plane, down with your luggage. Dead people are zipping from one place to another all the time. Say the dead person lived in California, but wanted to be buried in Michigan. Or the person died on vacation in Mexico, but has to be brought back to New York. We handle bodies like this at my funeral home all the time. We pack them very safely in heavy-duty flying cases, drop them off at the airport, and send them soaring away home. Any flight you take, there might be an extra passenger tucked below. As a final note, according to the flight crew, no one ever really dies on a plane. If a person were to die mid-flight, that would mean a bunch of hassle and paperwork for the crew. The whole flight could even be quarantined upon landing for fear of disease. Then there's the possibility the police would consider the plane a potential crime scene and take it out of commission while they investigate. It's hard enough to make airline connections without an episode of Law & Order happening at seat 32B. (laughs) Rather than admit death in the sky, the protocol is to ask that medical personnel declare the person dead once on the ground. Most flight attendants aren't doctors, and can argue they aren't qualified to declare a passenger legally dead. Sure, the passenger hasn't breathed for three hours, and they're in rigor mortis, but that doesn't prove (laughs) anything. So now you know what to expect if someone dies on your plane. Sitting next to a corpse all the way to Tokyo isn't ideal, but I would prefer a corpse to a crying baby. No offense to crying babies, I just spend more time around corpses.
0: (laughs) So great, so great.
1: Get these mother corpses off my mind
0: plane I could not It never occurred to me that they would put somebody in a seat next to somebody else i mean if if they polled the entire plane and said, "Listen, we can put a corpse next to one of you or no beverage service wouldn't the whole plane vote for no beverage service?
1: Well, I had this. I have this very bizarre fantasy of that being the one thing that my job qualifies me for is that specific question is like you know they ask is there a doctor on the plane and, you know people raise their hands but if someone was ever like is there a mortician on the plane <laughs> like we have a cor- we have a, so- a corpse there's no extra seat someone needs to sit next to this dead body I would be like I volunteer as tribute I'd raise my hand high I can do this
0: Uh, The last flight that I was on, a guy, uh, we thought he was going to die. He passed out. And they were trying to get him out of his seat and, you know, he would come to just enough to fight them off from getting, Mm. because they wanted to lie him flat and somebody on board was a doctor and they were trying to get this guy to raise his legs above his head. And eventually he was fine. I think he was, he was diabetic and he'd either eaten something that didn't agree with him or he hadn't eaten enough or something. I don't remember, but I remember thinking, and it was a transatlantic flight. And Mm. I remember thinking, oh my God. Please live. Not for you or anybody you love, for me. <laughs> for Please me and live. The, and the children
1: on this flight. Yeah. Well, it's I we made that joke about the guy faking it to get into first class. Right. But he was in trouble. He was really like he was lying in his own puke. It didn't look like he was breathing. And wow. just he it was scary. I really I did not anticipate the eventuality that he would come back around and that it would be that it would be okay, and he'd move up to first class. Um, it was, and it was, it was scary. It's a different, you know. I work with dead bodies, but I don't work. With, I'm not a medic. I don't work with death. You know, I'm not. Sta- I'm not sitting around watching people die all the mm-hmm. time. That's not my work. Um, so That's not your jam. It's not my. It's not what I do. No. Um And I, I, I'd like to think that I'm maybe more comfortable with the aftermath than than other people, just because I'm so close to mortality. But I, I don't. I, I greatly admire hospice workers and nurses and people who actually deal with the dying portion.
0: Yeah. To me, the scariest part of of death is the struggle to stay alive and watching it be lost, either feeling it be lost or watching Mm -hmm. someone lose it. That to me, because there's something about it that feels so undignified and helpless.
1: Or watching things in your body that are working, chugging along every day that are working in your body right now, thousands of micro things to keep you alive. And then in somebody else being like, oh, those things just aren't quite working right. So everything is going to stop.
0: Yeah.
1: Ooh. And this, is, <laughs> this is supposed to help people feel more comfortable with mortality. I don't know why I'm breaking this down, but yeah, it's, 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 but it makes you sort of appreciate your own body, right? And how your body works and how it, how it keeps going, even in these, yeah. You know, what, how, do, how do our bodies work? I mean, I know we know this, science. We know how our bodies work, right. but it just, I don't know. I It's, it's profound and yeah. special,
0: yeah. our bodies. Gracie, come here. Aww. Come here. I know you love our new guest, but come here. Uh, so... How are you doing emotionally today? <laughs> what What's the what's the recurring battle in your head? I'm not doing enough. Mm, great question. Um, and if you're not comfortable talking, no, about no, it, no. That's, I'm that's I'm fine.
1: I'm probably too comfortable. I Probably have too many things to say. Um, I think it's been a long year as far as figuring out, as far as accepting that I am a workaholic and mm-hmm. that there's profound diminishing returns from working all the time. And that if I can, even if if I were to work four hours every morning and I was actually completely in the zone and doing what I needed to do, that would be enough for my actual job. And working toward being less on my phone, less communicative, less available. And that's all positive. But I think the real issue has been, okay, I'm finally addressing this and setting aside. That means, okay, that means I have from 1 p.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. every day to do what I love. And then crickets. Like, what do you mean do what I love? What I do is work. What I do is, is create this stuff and always be checking on these different things and these different companies I have and doing meetings and do, wait, do what I love.
0: Do you I, not I, know what you love? I
1: don't know what I love. Yeah. I mean, I, lo- I love my work a lot. I love reading a lot. But it's this emptiness around it. And in a way, I'm nervous about – I'm about to go on book tour – again, and then I'm doing a lot of filming and a lot of things in October. And in some ways, I'm nervous about all of that work. But it's also kind of a comfort zone, right? I'm always like, oh, I got to go on tour. Oh, I'm just going to be working all the time. Just doing all the interviews, doing all the events, doing all the book signings. Oh, it's going to be so overwhelming. But I can say that, but actually, I'm probably going to be happier doing that than I am when I get home and I have these stretches of free time. And if I'm not filling them with something, quote, unquote, productive, mm-hmm. that's when I get into a really dark place. You can only go to LACMA so many times, <laughs> you can only like, you know, go on a walk so many times. And I think that's where I'm where my trouble is at the moment.
0: Do you, are you reticent sometimes to let people get really close? And the reason I ask that is because that's kind of the classic workaholic is that um, it's I don't a way like of a weakness.
1: Av- I don't like expressing weakness to other people, or I don't absolutely. like help from other people.
0: I, I would classify that as a as a fear of a certain type of intimacy. And, I, and I'm not no, you know, it, yeah, absolutely saying, oh is. my God, you know your relationships are shit and you keep everybody <laughs> at, at, at arm's length. But... Um there's an avoidance uh mm-hmm. in I mean not, that's obvious in, in, in workaholism, but it's I think a lot of people think that workaholism is about um making money or oh, no. creating yeah. an image. But a lot of people if you know somebody who is a workaholic, it's about a fear of stillness.
1: Absolutely. It's a fear of stillness and a fear of of stopping or not producing. And, not, and this goes back to when I was in my 20s and I set out with this mission to change culture and to set out how people feel about death. And it's a time of transition because I am at this point now where I say, okay, I have put out three books. I've put out hundreds of, of videos of contents and these articles. And there is stuff out there now where my advocacy is known. I've put it out. It's available mm. for people who are seeking it. There are people ten years from now who are going to Google something and find it.
0: And you get dozens of or emails gonna, every day from oh, yeah, people asking absolutely,
1: about. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and yeah. So that's from every, so, so that's set. So that's set, and it is set. But the idea that it is set and it's okay, and I can afford to not work or think about it for one afternoon, is still very foreign to me, and there's a real existential pain that comes from taking time off for me. Talk, talk, a about real...
0: talk about what it feels like in your body and the thoughts that go through your head when you try to be still, you try to clear an afternoon with nothing planned.
1: There's a real, one of the things that I think, especially gig economy workers or like younger creative people um, can understand is the idea of the whack-a-mole bursts of of pleasure that comes from getting something done, from crossing something off the list, from scheduling something and knocking it out, sending the email, sending the tough thing, making the tough phone call, send, even sending a tweet, these little, like, Pithy, useless whack-a-mole feelings that you've done something that you can then cross off and you're like, oh, I did my Instagram. Oh, I had this meeting. Oh, I did this thing. I, so you, I you feel
0: you feel literal pleasure.
1: I feel pleasure. Yeah, so I feel pleasure dopamine. when I can, It's Yeah, it's dope, My dopamine is set off when I accomplish a task ah. or a thing related to work. So it's so, not necessarily
0: a fear. It's the absence of of that. It's
1: the absence of those hits. Exactly. So if I say so say, for example, that I on a typical day, I wake up and I do some, I set aside my hours and I do bookkeeping for the funeral home. And then I do, maybe I do an interview like this, let's say. And then maybe I do an hour of writing or an hour of putting together a talk. And then I answer 10 emails. And I say, okay, that's a nice chunk of work that I've done today. That really is what I needed to get done today. All right, it is 1230pm. Okay, okay. Um, I am going to, I am reading this book that I enjoy. I'm going to go to a coffee shop and I am going to read the book. Won't that be lovely? And I show up at the coffee shop and it's one thirty, and it's just, I no longer have anything that's hitting me. I no longer have a feeling that it's just a really, I feel. I feel. And I, well, I don't want to say depressed because I'm not clinically depressed, but a, a, a form of depressed thoughts shows up very quickly, without a feeling of of
0: something to. Can you to describe hit. it in your body?
1: It's a. It's. It, it does become anxiety. It does become an, an anxious feeling of like the
0: sixty minutes ticking clock.
1: Uh, yeah, sort of. It, it's a feeling in my chest. It's a feeling of. You know, a little, a little feeling of panic, even though you know that there's the beauty of it is that there absolutely isn't anything due. Like, it's supposed to be the feeling of freedom, right? It's supposed to be the feeling of, oh, I don't have anything to do. I'm, I am here and I, I have nothing to accomplish today. And you've worked, oh, Caitlin, you've worked so hard to set this up for yourself, to have this free time. You've optimized your, your workload mm-hmm. so you can really focus on your free time. And then it's just not a pleasant feeling. It's not a, you know, I would, it's almost a more pleasant feeling to be sitting there watching YouTube videos part of the day and tweeting part of the day Mm -hmm. and answering useless emails part of the day and then finishing at 6 p.m. and being like, well, I had to work the whole day. Right. than it is to actually give myself yes. a chunk of uninterrupted time.
0: It's it's like the pressure of no pressure. The
1: pressure of no pressure is intense for people who have yes. used, have gotten themselves habituated to getting those dopamine hits from micro accomplishments throughout the day.
0: I will sometimes work myself into a nap just by having a free afternoon because the possibilities – there's so many possibilities of what i could do with it the fear then that i will choose the wrong one uh just cripples me and and i have to go lay down and then i mm-hmm. feel like a piece of
1: shit mm-hmm. yeah well yesterday i went <laughs> yesterday i went on a hike in franklin canyon and We went up the side. We sort of made a wrong turn and went up the side. And I was in the, I'm not supposed to be in the direct sun. And I was in the direct sun. And it was a washed out, so we could barely get down the side of this hill. And I was so hot. And I was just almost crying because I was like, no, this was supposed to be my magical hike. Like my Mm -hmm. magical, and at the end of it all, I felt really good. But there's also this sense of a horrible pressure to optimize whatever it is you're doing
0: to be perfect to
1: be not even to be perfect because it's it's i don't i tend to not share these things on social media or i'm not Mm. like oh here's my fun life um but i mean because how many things like that am i doing but the sense of of okay i took this time off from work if i'm taking time off from work it needs to be this somehow nurturing experience or fulfilling experience and then when you don't have when it doesn't go how you need it to go Or it's not actually a magical, Mm -hmm. fulfilling experience. And I found that there's usually something on the other side of it. I told you that we went to – checked into that hotel for two nights. And the first day was just hellish. I was just like, oh, I thought this was going to be a nice little, like – Palm frond covered balcony, and there there's a DJ playing Rihanna and Drake reggaeton mashup, and it's people screaming, and it's all oh, this is my hell. Oh, I can't find a restaurant to go get a bagel. What is that? Mm-hmm. And just like such anger at myself. And then on the second day is when I woke up and it was just like mm, I'm gonna sit on the balcony and get a smoothie and just sit here and read my book. Oh, I love this. And it was like it took me that much. Detox or like dopamine detox to be able to. And I think most people find that if they turn off their phone for two days, that the first day is just mm. hellish. And only after that period of time can they be like, Oh, wait, I appear to be present and I appear to not need as much as I thought I did and not need as much stimulation as I thought I did. But I think that the, you know, the, the economy that we're in and how we work and how we work online. Has really warped our brains, it really has it's Stillness dark is it's, more
0: difficult than ever
1: it's so dark, and I used to if you'd ask me two or three years ago, you know how do you justify working on on YouTube and twitter and and using these platforms, I would say, Listen, yeah, I know they're bad, but this is how I share my work. This is how I share my advocacy. I have to use them. And that's still true, but it's harder to justify mm-hmm. that as time goes on because there's so many dark things happening with our information and the way that it changes our brain structure and chemistry and the way that it depresses us and causes anxiety and the way causes, our data is used. The way our and data is used beating exactly. the oligarchy. Exactly. It's 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 really dark and it's hard to and I want to be this voice of helping people address this and 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 but i i mean addressing death but it's hard to use those platforms and it's hard to see how they've affected my brain as well and i feel like i feel like a pretty good case study for it
0: yeah and and uh i i like hearing the struggles you have being alive oh yeah (laughs) combined with the issues of dying, because how can one not affect the other?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, of course not. And of course they do. And, you know, and and what's sort of sad about this is that I feel like I'm doing it better than most people. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I have more of a handle on my work and how I make money and how I ethically make money and how I Mm -hmm. go about my life than a lot of people that I know. And if this is this hard for me, who has a lot of advantages and a lot of advantages to how I've set up my life, like, Lord, how must this be for other people?
0: Yeah. I saw Jerry Seinfeld do stand-up uh, one time, and he said, and this was after he had sold Seinfeld for, I don't know, $50 million or something, and he took a pause and, and he looked at the audience and he said, life sucks. I mean, more for you than me, but life <laughs> sucks. And I remember feeling kind of sorry for him in that moment because I I don't feel that life sucks. I feel that life is challenging and frustrating, but I feel like there are morsels of beauty and joy and where we're able to transcend the existential dread and feel human connection. And I think this sounds like a bit of a cliche, but the connection is where it's at. You know, you talked about the, the drum thing and the potluck. And that to me is what life, those are the moments that I find myself chasing because the legacy moments, I feel like that's maybe a byproduct of us just following our passion. And, but to go after the legacy is to try to feed the monster. And, um, I don't know, that's just my two cents. No, I,
1: I agree with you. And there is something, you know, I'm, I'm beyond, you asked me what my current struggle was, and that is yes. the current struggle, but something that I have to say that this whole thing also excites me. And it also, I I do like a challenge in that sense. Mm. And instead of viewing it as, oh, I'm in this terrible period of transition. I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what to mm. do with this time I've created for myself. That's the challenge, right? That's right. the exciting part. Like my dopamine can come from trying to crack this code. Yeah. Like, do I need to have more afternoons where I just sit with a friend? Like I was, I was doing, I was in Russia recently <laughs> for work, but we went to a, got invited to a Russian tea room. Where we just sat there and you put all these teas and you just pour them and you talk and you pour them and you talk and it lasts hours. And so I got some of this amazing tea and brought it back. And I'm, I am I want to do it with some people. I want to have just sit there for two hours and talk as we're making tea and, and mm-hmm. putting it together and having that kind of slower experience. And that is a chat so, so Have you done it yet? I, I've done it with myself. I haven't done it with other people. Um, I wasn't sitting there tweeting when I was doing it. But um, just having that kind of leaning into that stillness and figuring out what works for me—that's I. It's a luxury for me, first of all, that I get to have, and I'm grateful for it. And I think you need to see it that way, right? You need to see it as, "Aren't I lucky that mm-hmm. this is a? Isn't this an exciting challenge?" And something I've been thinking about recently too is the idea of. I read this and I loved it is that instead of beating yourself up about not being great at something or not having a particular skill, for me, it was Mm -hmm. accounting. You're just not good at it yet. Mm -hmm. This is something that you're, you can work towards and you can learn and you can get better at. So I'm not great at relaxing right now, Mm -hmm. but this is something that I can get better at and learn to clear my mind and learn to just not have an afternoon planned either. And so I'm I as much as it's challenging, I'm also excited about potentially coming out the other end of it.
0: I love it. That's such a great attitude mm-hmm. to to have. And that makes all the difference in the world is to see the challenges rather than, you know, it slumps your shoulders mm-hmm. and just makes you want to retreat.
1: Right. Well, it can be challenges or it can be challenges. Like Yeah. Pew pew pew! You know, and it's something that you want to a monster that you want to slay, and I think you know it, it's it's easier to look at life that way. It makes it a little makes it a little more bearable.
0: I just wish it was easier to get into that headspace because I don't know how to get into that. I get stuck in the dread of uh, catastrophizing of. of you know, there's going to be traffic. Uh, somebody's going to bore me. <laughs> that's the it's,
1: title of your memoir. Dot dot dot. There's going to be traffic. Yeah, that's yeah, so. Okay. That's so perfect.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Caitlin, thanks so much for uh, coming by again. the The name of the book is "Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs?" and uh, it's it's a great book. As uh, are all the books uh, that you that you've written. Uh, if people want to know more about you, where can they go or follow you?
1: Uh, dot com. After that whole conversation, I'm not going to tell you my Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> put down your phone. Don't follow me. That's my... Um, yeah, that's it. What a great conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: Love having you. Thanks. Bye. So great talking to her. So uh, we'll put the links to all her stuff on our website, as I mentioned. Today's episode is sponsored by Roman. Nobody likes to talk about erectile dysfunction, except me. Oh, I love to bring it up. In line, for coffee, on the bus, on the train, in the hot air balloon. That's how I get to and from, by the way. A lot of times, if it's windy, boy, am I late. (laughs) With Roman, you can get metal... I should really start this whole fucking thing over. But you know what? We're plowing right ahead. I do honestly deal with uh, erectile dysfunction. And with Roman, you can get medical care for ED from the comfort of your home and handle everything online in a convenient, discreet manner. And I I use them, and I'm very happy with them. They're affordable. Other places I've gotten ED meds are way more expensive and it's super simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash mental and complete an online visit. And if your doctor decides the treatment would be appropriate, they'll prescribe genuine medication that can be delivered in discreet packaging right to your door with free two-day shipping. Erectile dysfunction can be tough to tackle, but it's really important to get checked out. And with Roman... It's easy. So just go to GetRoman.com mental to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com mental for a free visit to get started. GetRoman.com mental. Let's read some surveys, shall we? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lady from Far Away. She is identifies as straight she's in her 20s she was raised she says she was raised in a stable and safe environment i think maybe twice on this podcast in nine years have i read somebody saying that and based on their survey agreed that it sounds like they were raised in a stable and safe environment She has never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. There are times when I think that I would so much like to kill myself and get everything to stop, that I get so mad at my family for, quote, keeping me here, as I could never do this to them. I am stuck here with no way out, and it's because of them. Darkest secrets. I've been cheating on my husband. There is some addiction that I can't stop. It's like I have to do it to fill the huge void that is my self-esteem. I've been lying about it. A lot. So many lies, and I feel like a horrible person after. I also started to shoplift recently. This, I have no idea why I do. All I know is I've been feeling bad lately, and this makes it a little bit better. I feel like some sort of... It feels like some sort of revenge against the world. You know, instead of... Basing your worth as a human being on the quality of the bad coping mechanism you're using to deal with your feelings, turn that focus to finding better tools to deal with your feelings. Because I think when we shame ourselves for the bad coping mechanisms that we reach out to, then it... it gets us in this cycle of wanting the quickest easiest thing we can do to not feel what we're feeling and those are often the really bad po- coping mechanisms like like you're describing or you know getting fucked up on drugs and alcohol not that those are bad but using them to cope with life is not an ideal choice sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being completely free multiple partners People walking in by accident, but then staying and watching. I feel weird sharing that because it sounds pretty tame, but yet I find myself compulsively fantasizing about people I know. Everything about... Fantasizing about people I know. Everything night before I sleep. I think she meant every night before I sleep. Uh, I curse you. Spell... That spell checker, what's the other thing called? Auto correct. You know, underneath this, I think, is a desire to feel seen, a desire to be your authentic self. And it sounds like it feels unsafe in your life to share your feelings and to connect to people and talk about what you're really feeling and what you're really thinking. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my husband about all the cheating and lies, but I can never, ever do it because it will ruin him, and he will leave me. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I loved myself enough so that I wouldn't need all these behaviors. I think, for me, everything comes down to this. I wish I could love myself. Well, in the absence of being able to love ourselves, let safe people get to know you and let them love you first, and eventually you'll realize enough of them love you, the authentic you, that they can't all be wrong. That's how it worked for me. Have you shared these things with others? This year I started therapy and shared this for the first time. That's awesome. Uh, It's hard. It's heartbreaking. But I think I'm getting the help I need. And I think a support group would be good too because therapy is awesome. And I'm a a, a huge believer in it. I think adding a support group is great because I think there's also something that is really great that happens when we are in a group with people who share our same experience and who are walking that same path how do you feel after writing these things down i thought i would feel better but i'm feeling a lot of self-judgment all i hear is get over yourself stop with the excuses you can you can stop all this and yet you don't you're weak and pathetic is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Oh my God, don't be so hard on yourself would be the first thing I'd say. Have a little self-compassion. We only ever came, quote, down here, unquote, to play. Thank you for sharing that. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Matt. He writes, sometimes I bike into work and drive past a local lake in the morning. This is There is this moment... Where the light hits the lake just right and you can see the lake shimmering through the trees one day when i first noticed this during my ride i thought well maybe just for that i'm glad that i'm still around i love that i love that thanks matt this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself fella mcginty and there's a little bit of stuff in here that's uh that's kind of graphic And he only filled out part of the survey, but uh, I think it's pretty interesting. He identifies as pansexual. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. A female cousin who was a couple of years older than me uh, made me go down on her when I was about five or six. I eventually told someone in my first grade class when they were talking about their understanding of sex. I thought it was a good brag, but was met with uncomfortable stares that taught me that what I was doing was something weird or gross or wrong, and that was the last anyone would hear of it. My parents always told me if someone touched me like that, they'd kill them. But I knew immediately that they were bullshitting because they wanted me to feel safe. He writes, uh, he writes I knew immediately that they were bolstering. Boy, do I hate auto uh, spell or whatever the fuck you call it. (laughs) Navigating these surveys that people have used that for is uh, frustrating to say the least. If you guys wouldn't mind when you fill the surveys out, just go back over it and check it. Actually, I could could apply that to myself. I hate it when I'm wrong. I knew immediately they were bullshitting because they wanted me to feel safe, which then made me suspect how much they really resented my birth. See, they were always honest about their life before me the drugs, the parties, how they weren't ready for a kid, but they quote, love me and wouldn't trade me for anything. (laughs) I wonder if a parent has ever said, I wouldn't trade you for most things. So now I'm not sure if I believe my parents love me or just need me there to take care of them. In addition, This is pretty graphic. I have a strong detailed memory of what a child's genitals taste like, which is very unsettling. I don't think of it often, but when I do, I feel like a monster because now performing oral sex on women is a powerful obsession. I used to hate her, but I've come to realize that a child that young had to have learned it from an adult. I still can't stand to be around her. He's been emotionally and physically abused. He writes, I'm an only child. My parents spent all of my childhood fighting. I eventually grew resentful, but I didn't really have anyone to tell it to. By middle school, I was drained emotionally and physically as many fights waited until I went to sleep. Uh, You know, so I was spared from witnessing it, in parentheses, and kept me up because we shared a wall. Uh, My used to take a belt? I think there's a word missing my mom or dad used to take a belt to me for my grade slipping which might explain why i stopped doing schoolwork after i realized i was bigger than him i was your dad and he wouldn't spank me anymore darkest thoughts in high school i had friends who were less than fond of me and eventually i just stopped trying to maintain any friendships to this day i doubt the loyalty of any person who gets close to me even my girlfriend who i've been with for five years now isn't safe from my paranoia It was during this time I started reading about serial killers. I became deeply fascinated with the psychology and when I started seeing similarities between me and some dangerous criminal profiles, I got very worried about where I was headed. I spent a great many years wringing my hands and again refusing to be attached to people because I thought without proper psychiatric attention I was doomed to be a killer. In trying to keep this brief, I'm trying to keep this brief so I'll skip ahead. To say, no, I haven't killed anyone, but I still fantasize about it. And I worry that I might break someday and say, fuck it. Well, the thing to ask yourself is, are you escalating your behavior towards it? And if you're not, it's just it's just a cartoon that your brain is playing. And maybe that's a way of, of your brain snapping itself out of the present moment because you feel so uncomfortable in your skin, Uh Maybe 15 years now I've been thinking about it. I've got that idea, plans to a degree, all in my head, bouncing around, in and out of my conscious mind. I swear though, I'm working towards getting help, and I have a wonderful, wonderful support in my friends and my lovely girlfriend with whom I have shared every secret in me, including that sometimes I sexualize children as young as 10 in my mind. I could never put someone through that. I know the consequences too well. I say it many times on the podcast, but our our brains show us a lot of dark, fucked up shit. And it doesn't matter what's playing in our brain. What matters is what we do with it. Darkest secret. When I was a kid, I used to play with dead things. I thought it was science. Nothing sinister. Also had an experimental gay relationship with a kid down the street during my pubescent years until I was about 15 and that's as much of the the survey he felt filled out but I I appreciate you you sharing a lot of that you know a lot of times themes kind of reveal themselves in the surveys that I come across when I'm putting them together for the week's podcast and the antisocial or you know, fantasizing about antisocial behavior uh, seemed to be the theme this week. This is a love filled out by a guy who calls himself Joshua. He writes, "Something I love is the feeling I get when I lie on my back in bed at the end of the day, and my ten-year-old reddish-brown Mini Pin Gidget curls up in my arm. I struggle all day with anxiety, and parentheses making eye contact with coworkers I know I've known for years is a challenge." on and then the end of parentheses, and I spend all day worrying about money and reaching future goals. At the end of the day, though, when Gidget hears me turn out the light and she jumps into the bed, her warmth and fuzzy neck in my hand brings me a great sense of calm and helps me realize how far we've come from past struggles together. She keeps me grounded and somewhat sane. I love that one. It really reminds me of the feeling I get when Gracie jumps up into the bed where, whether I'm taking a nap or or I'm going to bed at the end of the night my favorite thing is when I lie on my back and, and she puts her head in the crook of my arm and I can feel her breathing on my neck I just fuck you. it's it's amazing no matter what I'm feeling in that moment it just vanishes this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a trans woman who calls herself the KKK took my pizza away assholes. She writes, I had just gotten my hair cut walking to a shopping complex and this guy seemed lost, upset. He stopped me and said he needed to catch a train two towns over and he needed $5 to get to his brother. I said, sure, I had the money, why not? I gave it to him. He seemed genuinely appreciative. Then he got on both knees and proceeded to kiss my foot. Well, that's a first, I thought to myself. He gave me a hug and I smelled alcohol on his breath. He couldn't walk straight. I asked him if he'd be okay to get to the station. He said yes. I told him to be safe and went on my way. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw him stop other people for money. I shook my head and chuckled. At least I did a good deed, I thought. And she doesn't know it, but she came across... Drunk Jesus, oh, he's back, and he is self-medicating. He, he took one look at the state of the world, and uh, he said, "I need to do, I need to do some drinking," because you don't understand the pressure that's on Jesus. He's got to come down, and make heaven on earth out of what it is now, so that he can please his Father. So you imagine like what it's like. When you had your parents over to your first apartment, Gracie, why do you, why do you got to kill my flow? So essentially, drunk Jesus is just tidying up. And to those of you uh, who are deeply, deeply religious, um, thank you for listening. And I bid you adieu, because I would imagine what I said was probably very offensive to you. And there you have it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, this is what it feels like to be alive. She identifies as bisexual. Uh, She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, She's never been sexually abused. Well, she says that she's never, but I would disagree with that based on what I will read in a moment. She's not sure if she has been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, I would say she definitely was. She had a violent mom who would beat her and then would cry afterwards and apologize. And just because someone apologizes afterwards doesn't mean that the feelings that you are left with aren't worth processing, giving weight to, and... And feeling them instead of just minimizing them. And it doesn't mean that you have to throw that person you know, to, to hell and cut them out of your life, but they're two completely separate issues. Whether or not that person is sick or not doesn't matter. What matters is the feelings that are left in the wake of them abusing us or us abusing them. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I love my mother deeply, and I know that she suffers from a variety of mental afflictions, so I have deep empathy for her. At some point in adulthood, I've learned that the things done to me as a child were not a reflection of my wrongdoings, but instead of the confusions of the person inflicting the pain. Letting go of the shame I've felt about myself has been tough, but it's a necessary process. This letting go allows me to open up to compassion for my mom and others. It's a process, though, as childhood traumas can completely fuck up the formative, fragile minds of a child. Sounds like we're on the same page, and maybe I shouldn't have said what I said before I read that. Maybe I should have done my homework a little better, and I'm a terrible person, and I don't deserve to have a podcast. What are your darkest thoughts? I often think about my mom dying and how free I would feel. This makes me sad, though, because I truly love her, and our relationship is so great on so many levels now that she doesn't care for me as a child anymore. However, I feel like I can't completely let go and be who I am because I will be judged by her. Uh, Also, maybe I want to write and publish poetry about kinky sexual experiences. Balls to the wall. All out. Certainly not while she's alive, though. Well, you could do it under a pen name. Darkest secrets. Oh my god, so many secrets. Well, one that I'm still grappling with is the urge I have to hurt my cat and how I've slightly acted on it, but without really hurting him. When I see him, sometimes I just want to hit him. I hate how he ignores me all day and then struts around wanting shit from me when he decides he wants it. I know that this is just the personality of a cat, but I have such an impulse to hurt him sometimes. This is strange because I love all animals and have been nothing but loving and compassionate to animals my whole life. The few times I've acted and been giving him loving scratches that have turned into scratching a little too hard or scratching him hard, then lightly slapping him to get him off my lap or even doing things that scare the shit out of him, I immediately come to my senses and feel so bad. I then coddle him and love him and give him treats. Holy shit, this sounds like how my mom would treat me. Wow, um, I'm not sure how to control myself from acting on these impulses, even though I control it 98% of the time, or even how to stop them from happening. Another secret is that when I was younger, my brother, who's a year older, would sneak into my room at night and lift up my shirt while I was sleeping to expose my developing breasts, and he would masturbate next to my bedside. I was a really deep sleeper so I often wouldn't wake up until he was already gone and my shirt was still lifted, or I'd awake while he was in the middle of it and I'd see him duck down and hide next to my bed. I never wanted to call him out on it so I'd make loud noises then give him an opportunity to leave. I started piling rocks on the other side of my closed door at night so that he would have a hard time coming in. There was no lock on my door, though he would push right through and come in anyway. Eventually one day when I was reading the dictionary, I did this for fun as a kid and as I often wasn't allowed to hang out with friends, and I came across the definition for incubus that reads, an imaginary demon or evil spirit supposed to descend upon sleeping persons, especially one fabled to have sexual intercourse with women during their sleep. I was so relieved to find a word for it, even though he wasn't technically having sex with me. I wrote down the definition, and one night, I slipped it under his door. After that, he never came into my room again. Wow. Wow. And that is sexual abuse, what you experienced. In the, earlier in the survey, you said that you'd never experienced sexual abuse. That is absolutely sexual abuse. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Other than the common rape and BDSM fantasies, I often masturbate thinking about my boyfriend having sex with his ex-girlfriend. I usually imagine that I am him and I am fucking the girl. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mom, even though you never called me fat or made me feel like I needed to diet, growing up around you and watching and listening as you would shame your own body and call yourself fat really fucked with my head. It gave me a 15-year battle with bulimia that has only recently ended. I haven't been able to say this to her because I don't want her to feel bad. I know that she never intended for me to apply the way she treated herself to the way I would inevitably treat myself. She is so sensitive and has so much going on in her head that I don't want to give her anything but love and be an example of self-love and compassion for her to learn from. You know, that that to me sounds like classic, you know, the child parenting the parent. And I know, you know, obviously you're an adult now and things can change, but um, I think it's important to... to Really take a hard look at who should be the parent and who should be the child and what are our needs. And not that we can't be there for a parent, but man, it's a slippery slope when they start parentifying us. What if anything do you wish for? I wish that my boyfriend, who seems to be void of any mental issues, would be more empathetic and understanding towards my struggles instead of telling me to build a fucking bridge and get over it. Wow, that is fucked up. That is fucked up. Uh, He is otherwise very kind and sensitive. You know, that's like saying Mrs. Lincoln uh, had a lot of great experiences at the theater (laughs) other than the one time. Uh, He's otherwise very kind and sensitive but has no patience for me when I am anything other than happy and balanced. That is some straight-up conditional love coming from him. This causes me to keep a lot from him and to try to let it out through other expressions like my writing and running. Man, you deserve better. Anybody deserves better than that. And and I'm not discounting his worth as a human being, but that dude has a lot of fucking work to do. And the way he is right now, I don't see any possibility for intimacy. You know, for intimacy, man, we need to feel safe with that person. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm a very secretive person, mainly because I don't really feel like I have anyone to whom I can relate or who would understand non-judgmentally. I know that if I met you, Paul, or anyone else who listens to your podcast, I would immediately open up. I suppose I just need a safe space. Well, of course, you know what I'm going to say. Support group, support group, support group. How do you feel after writing these things down? Gracie, uh, I guess she wants some attention today lay down. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like crying, and now I'm actually crying. It feels so amazing to be able to, quote, say these things, and I so badly want a hug. Thank you so much for your show and for offering a safe space for people who otherwise might feel like misfits. Well, I am sending you a hug back. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? The practice of letting go is so necessary. Attachment brings attachment brings about suffering and perpetuates problems, even if there's no answer to your questions or no remedy for your ailments. Ailments? <laughs> Those are ailments for, for men. Sometimes the best thing to do is to breathe deeply and, with your exhale, let it all go. The brain wants to resolve issues so that it's more efficient in the future, but when past traumas are involved, sometimes there's nothing to be resolved except for resolving your own emotions by simply letting go. There is a tool that's free, doesn't need a prescription, and is widely available to everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and thank you for the kind words. That, that means a lot to me. This is an awful awesome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, If So Girl, and she writes, I left my partner of nine years, eight months ago. Two years prior, he had slipped into depression and had been slowly becoming less and less involved in our relationship. One night he came home pissed off and we had the biggest fight we'd ever had. He separated me from my kids, 10 and 14, and at one point grabbed me around the throat and shoved me against a wall. I walked away in the middle of the night with my two kids in tow. Just the other day, Facebook was kind enough to show me he already has a new girlfriend. Thanks, mutual Facebook friend, for posting those pics. On one hand, it's really hurtful to see pics posted from two months ago. Him already in a relationship, an ex-girlfriend of his actually, is that all nine? Is that all nine years meant to him? On the other hand, he looks like he's aged about twenty years and had, and had out on at least forty. Oh, I guess again. Oh, dictator added on at least 40 pounds, which is kind of sweet because I still look the same as when we met 10 years ago. Strangely enough, this news hasn't brought me down. It's just proven to me that he's not worked on any of his issues or faced how he behaved that night. I made the right choice and I'm living a much better life without him or anyone else to complicate mine and my kids' lives. Man, I fucking love it when somebody doesn't take care somebody else's shit anymore. And they just walk away. That is... It it seems like such a simple thing. And it can be so hard. And oh, Facebook. Oh. The complicated emotions you have wrought. Facebook. They should have a status. uh, They have what? Single married, in a relationship, and then they should have one that says obsessing or lost in deep, deep fantasy and crushing self-doubt. How many people would check that one? Lost in deep, deep fantasy and crushing self-doubt. This is an intense and fascinating survey by a young kid who calls himself J.S. Um, It's, I'm just going to read it. Uh, He's never been sexually abused. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, Uh, but he has been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, I'm 16 and recently moved out of my house because my parents are too much for me to handle. Ever since I can remember, uh, my parents, especially my mom, have always gone a corporal punishment for anything I've done. I've had black eyes, bruised legs, and a broken arm. In sixth grade, I told my principal about my bruises that my mom gave me in a fit of rage, and I ended up getting in trouble, which if you ask me is total fucking bullshit. I think mean, if you ask anybody, it's total fucking bullshit. That is oh my God, the betrayal not only by your mom but the authorities that oh The strange thing is the abuse was almost like a switch. Sometimes they were nice, other times they would turn into total monsters. I came out to my parents after my second stay in the psych ward last year, and that was the last straw for both of us. My parents would constantly call me a faggot, a dyke, which is kind of strange because I'm not lesbian, and other slurs. I was recently hired as a sales manager for a clothing company. I decided to move out and get my own apartment. My parents said I ran away, but after telling the police about the abuse and showing pictures of my injuries, my mother was arrested. I now live in my two-bedroom apartment, uh, and I couldn't be more happy. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents were nice sometimes, but they would use those nice times as guilt trips when I was upset with them. Boy, that is a mindfuck. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes want to just beat the shit out of my parents and light their corpse. Uh, that's not a typo. Uh, his parents are uh, conjoined twins, and they had to take a lot of yoga to fuck, and and give birth to him. So, yeah. But if they were lit on fire, one of them could call the help, call for help, and the other one could try to put the fire out. Continuing. I don't know why. It's just sometimes I get the urge to just fuck them up like they did to me. Well, how that how could you not feel that way? The shit that was done to you is is horrifying. And then this is dark. This is dark. Darkest secrets. The reason I was in a psychiatric facility was because I killed two dogs. I don't know why. I just felt like doing it. I wrote about it in a journal, and one night my dad found it, and he took me to a local hospital. After my stay, which wasn't bad, I was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, in parentheses, yeah, the psychopath disorder, uh, and diagnosed with psychosis. After inpatient, I went to an IOP program, which also wasn't bad. Every time they asked if I regretted killing the dogs, I said yes, but secretly I didn't, and I still don't. I do what I want, and if people have a problem with that, they can fuck themselves. They can go fuck themselves. Oh, and uh, I don't know if I mentioned. Anyway, continuing. Uh, Sexual fantasies. Uh, There's a guy that comes around my apartment complex to clean the rooms. He's 22 and lives alone. I sometimes fantasize about him coming into my apartment while I'm changing, and in a fit of rage and confusion, I knock him out. Then I proceed to have sex with his unconscious body. He then wakes up and I explain what happened to him. He's really turned on by this and we proceed to have sex for the rest of the day. I feel kind of strange writing this because I've never really been a sexual guy, but reading this makes me feel like I need to explore more. Well, please don't explore non-consensual sex with somebody. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I've always wanted to say that I support Trump. I know that's controversial and such, but that's how I feel. I see people like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and envy how open they are about their views, no matter how controversial they are. As an openly gay black guy, telling a co-worker that I support the right is often met with laughter, confusion, then shock. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for people from both the left and the right to respect each other's views. With events like Charlottesville, I realize that my wish may never come true. It hurts me to see these events happening. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't shared these thoughts because of the controversies behind them. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel great getting these off my chest. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I just wanted to say that I fucking love you and the show. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for your for your kind words and your um, your survey. Really left an impression uh, on me, and I it's um, it's an intense it is an intense survey, and I appreciate you taking time to to share that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Pepper Potts, and she writes, I ended up having a breakdown and subsequently took a leave from work. I've been feeling majorly depressed, a lot of self-loathing, isolation, not practicing self-care. My doctor changed up my medication, and that is helping a lot, but part of the treatment while I'm off is for me to get out of the house. Doesn't matter what it's for, so I've been forcing myself to leave the house. Then something strange started happening. Yes, I know it's sad that I think of this as strange, but it's not something that usually happens to me. Every single time I left the house, without fail, a complete stranger would have a positive interaction with me. Sometimes it would be in the form of a pleasant short conversation, other times a compliment, or it would just be a simple hello with eye contact and a smile. I can't believe how much these little interactions brightened my day and made me feel like I was a part of the world and like maybe it's easier to find a little bit of goodness in my surroundings than I thought. Maybe it's those little moments that will help pull me out of the swamp. I'm still on leave and it's still a struggle to get myself out of the house, but I'd like to try and start being that stranger that brightens someone else's day. We need more of that in this world. I love that man. I love that, and I needed to read that because I so often just have this vague sense of dread about leaving the house, and um, I know it doesn't make sense logically, but emotionally, it's, it, it can just be a, a hurdle, a hurdle. Wanna give another shout out to our sponsor, Jetson Probiotics. Ninety percent of your serotonin can be found in your gut, which is why a healthy gut has a huge impact on your mental health. So to get a healthy gut, you need an effective probiotic. And Jetson is the world's first seasonal probiotic. Jetson sends a fresh bottle to your door every month and a new formulation every sus- season. Every Susan. Every time a woman named Susan appears in the doorway. They send you a fresh bottle. Go to wearejetson.com and enter code mental for thirty percent off your first month. I had too many cappuccinos. I'm going to blame my stumbling and bumbling on that. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. And if you need a nap, take a nap. Nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person they wanted to be. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.